Well, you can turn with me to John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, I would ask, is every person in the world a child of God? If we're going to think wisely as we answer that question, we have to ask questions of that question. Right? Say, Thomas, what do you mean by child of God? And back in uh, the 19th century, uh, there was a many group uh, or a group of uh, German theologians who were trying to uh, compare the the world's religions to to find kind of the the, the base substance uh, of every single faith. Uh, a common substance that would uh, be the support uh, of every religion. Uh, and uh, these theologians uh, began to study and compare uh, all of the, the world's religions, and uh, they, they were coming to this, in essence, with a, a presupposition. And we, we've talked about presuppositions in the past, so if it's a, a starting belief, uh, and that their starting belief as they were trying to find this uh, common ground among all religions was that they uh, all led to the same place. Uh, that every uh, religion leads to God. Uh, and that view in and of itself is a separate religion since most of the world's religions would uh, disagree with that. Uh, most of the world's religions do not say uh, all roads lead to God. That, that's very much a, a Western uh, worldview. But uh, one of these uh, German uh, theologians and professors, uh, Adolf uh, von Harnack, uh, wrote a, bur- a book that uh, kind of encapsulates uh, the ideas of uh, that period. Uh, and his book is entitled, What is Christianity? Uh, and as he tried to distill all of the, uh, the, the faiths of the world, and ultimately also Christianity, down to its, its essence, this is the conclusion that he came to. And that was the universal fatherhood of God uh, and the universal brotherhood of man. But uh, von Harnack's uh, theology and his conclusions were kind of influenced greatly by uh, liberalism, uh, by humanism, and ultimately by universalism. And it becomes apparent in his book because uh, what he started with, his presupposition that all roads lead to God, is what he ended with. Uh, And in essence, a a denial of the exclusivity of Christ. In essence, saying uh, Jesus is not uh, the only way to have a relationship with God. He's just one of many ways. Uh, But this is... This is not what is seen in Scripture. Uh, And this idea of the universal fatherhood of God and uh, the universal brotherhood of man, they they sound good uh, and they they sound biblical. uh, But this is, again, where we need discernment. And discernment is not just figuring out what's right and what's wrong, uh, but discernment is figuring out what is right and then what is almost right. Uh, and, And these are ideas that are really just one degree off and so what is taught in scripture and i guess here would here would be some some clarifications uh the universal fatherhood of god is not taught in scripture what is taught in scripture is uh the universal creatorhood of god Uh, that uh the bible clearly teaches that uh, god has made man in his image and every single human being uh is an image bearer every single human being has uh, intrinsic worth uh, and value uh, and an indiminishable value uh, you can't take away from the value of any other person. 
uh, because we are all created in God's image and we trace our uh, creator uh, back to, to God. And, uh, and in this, uh, Christianity is really the only worldview that explains why we should love and care for every single person uh, equally. Uh, and uh, the, the Apostle Paul points back to this uh, creatorhood of God uh, and as he's speaking with philosophers uh, in uh, the ancient city of Athens uh, in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and in reasoning and, and preaching to them, the Apostle Paul says this in Acts 17, uh, beginning in verse 26. He says, he, speaking of God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Uh, and in, Paul uses uses this uh, statement that we are the offspring of God. Again, this is uh, a different word even than what we looked at last week in John chapter 8 where there were two different words uh, used in terms of uh, offspring or children. This is a, another word and it simply means descendants where we get our English word generation. You know, from generation to generation. And uh, The Apostle Paul is saying we all go back to God. He is our creator. Uh, and so we don't see... Uh, that God is the father of all humanity. He is the creator of all humanity. Additionally, Scripture uh, does not teach the universal brotherhood of humanity, but it teaches uh, the universal neighborhood of humanity. Uh, that every single person, because we are all created in God's image, uh, we are called to see every other person uh, that we interact with as our neighbor. And what are we supposed to do towards our neighbor? We are to love them as we love ourselves. Again, this is the command. And this is uh, the, the theological underpinning uh, that uh, only Christianity has. Right? Atheism, uh, Darwinism, they cannot explain why we should uh, have uh, equality among all people, why we should treat everybody with love, and why we should pursue justice. The, the world doesn't have an answer for that. You just start to ask those questions. Well, why should we do that? What's your foundation? Why should we do that? Why, why should I love others? According to your worldview, only biblical Christianity uh, has a foundation to stand upon in these things. Uh, and we are commanded to love each and every person without exception. But here's some additional clarification. So the scripture teaches the universal creatorhood of God and the universal neighborhood of humanity. But it also clearly teaches that only those who believe in Jesus can be identified or called children of God. The very beginning of John's gospel that we looked at months ago, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, and th there's a, a contrast made. If you, if you turn back there, I know you're maybe in John chapter 8, there's a, a contrast. If you look with me, John chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, the true light, speaking of Jesus, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then there's going to be a contrast. Jesus, the light of the world, comes to his own. They don't receive him. But 
All who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And that's what we see. It is only those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ who can be rightly called children of God. And there is a universal brotherhood, but it's a universal brotherhood of believers. If we are all uh, children of God, we are all His Father, that means that we are all, if we are believers, we are all siblings. Again, that has a, 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 an implications for how we interact with one another. But those implications, uh, if we are all uh, brothers or sisters in Christ, we still treat uh, those who are not in Christ as our neighbor. We still love them and care for them, regardless of whether they are believer or unbeliever or wherever they are uh, from or whatever they look like. This is what we see. But as I've offered these clarifications, that raises some additional questions, right? Uh, if uh, we are all uh, brothers in Christ, if we are in Christ, uh, what does that mean for those who are not in Christ? Right? If we are children of God as believers, what does that mean for all of those uh, who are not following Christ. If, if they are not children of God, whose children are they? Who is their father? Well, as we come to, to John chapter 8, Jesus is going to, to answer that question, and he's going to be very direct in his answer. Uh, and we have to remember that the context of what we're parachuting down into this morning, uh, that Jesus is teaching uh, Believers, He's teaching people who have claimed to follow him, but they are not really following him. Okay? Uh, they are still tr- these people are still trusting in their own works and really in their own heritage. Over and over again, Jesus is trying to, to help them see not, that they should not find their roots and their identity, that their false assurance of salvation in uh, their lineage. They keep saying, we are children of Abraham, so we are safe. We are good to go. And Jesus is going to try and, uh, and shake them. And have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where you, you start out trying to kind of beat around the bush and, and be gracious and gentle, but, but they just aren't getting it? What, what gradually happens over the course of that conversation? You, you have to be more and more direct and more and more clear. Uh, and so for, for several years of his ministry, Jesus has been telling uh, everyone at the beginning of his ministry his message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand turn away from your sin and turn back to god and over the course of his ministry all of these people have been uh, eyewitnesses to his miracles and ear witnesses to his teaching but they haven't genuinely received and believed everything that they've seen and heard and so it's coming to the point now again we're just about six months away from Jesus returning to Jerusalem and being executed. Six months in the future from what we're going to study today. Uh, And Jesus is trying to to shake the people that he's speaking with and and help them to see, no, you're putting your assurance in the wrong thing. You need to look to Jesus. Trying to help them to see their true spiritual condition. So what I want to read this morning, kind of get a a running start, we're going to look at verses 41 to 47, but I want to begin reading in verse 30. And this is the the tail end of what Jesus had been 
teaching previously, and we see the response in verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, and yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. And this is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, We we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God, and the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Just pause and pray. Father, you are perfect, holy, righteous. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You have known all things and are bringing all things to come to pass. Lord, through Your Word, You help us to see who You are. You help us to see what Your world is like. And You help us to see ourselves clearly. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that you would help us to lay aside all of our preconceptions about who we are. But may we receive truth from you, our creator. May you open our eyes to see your word clearly, your world clearly. 
and help us to see our hearts and help us to apply your word to submit to it and lord use this time to grow our worship and adoration of you we ask in jesus name amen what we see in this passage uh, is jesus pulling back a uh, a theological curtain Uh, he's showing them uh, the results of their spiritual paternity test. They didn't know they were taking this spiritual paternity test, uh, but he's going to to bring the news to them. He's going to, to tell them that despite all of their claims to being children of Abraham, and even as we see, uh, they claim to be children of God, uh, he, he's going to, to say, no, that is not the case. Uh, you are not uh, in god's family he's going to tell them they are part of that other family Uh, and he hinted at that other family uh, about another father in verse 38 uh, and in verse 41 right he says uh, you're doing the works of your father you're doing what you have heard your father say to you but then he's going to clearly state it in verse 44 they are not children of god they are children of the devil and those are harsh words right Uh, Those are are sobering words. But we need to see and understand why Jesus is saying them. Uh, And Jesus could just be speaking through his his own divine omniscience, right? He knows all things. But what he's going to to lay out, uh, what he's going to explain to them, is he knows this just from the the evidence that is uh, before him uh, and before them. Uh, Evidence that is clear even for us to see. And in these verses, verses 41 to 47, we're going to see evidence that uh, supports and explains this spiritual paternity test. And as we study this passage, we're, we're going to see the condition of uh, fallen humanity. Okay, if uh, if you, you are here this morning and uh, you haven't looked to Christ in faith, uh, Jesus is going to be describing you as you currently are. Okay? Uh, If you are here this morning and you have trusted in Christ, uh, Jesus is going to be describing you uh, as uh, you have been, but are not now. Uh, But here's the key. This should not lead to any type of spiritual pride uh, among those who have trusted in Christ. uh, Because we really need to see what we have been rescued out of by Jesus. Uh, And we need to understand that there are no children of God now who were not at one point children of the devil. Christ has rescued us out of the domain of darkness and has brought us into his kingdom and made us his citizens. And this passage is going to describe either your current family or your former family. But either way, we all have family ties uh, and we all have common ground here. And so we need to to see and understand that and to examine this without any ounce of pride but seeing that this reveals something about each and every one of us but what exactly does this passage tell us about that other family well say that we're going to be introduced to the father of that family in verse 44 and then we're also going to see uh, the traits of that family uh, over the the course of all of these verses but i want to look first uh, just very briefly Uh, at the father of that other family. Jesus states this in in verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. 
Uh, there are a few things that we, we need to know or to be reminded uh, about him. First and foremost, I know this may seem really obvious, but we can't speed past it. Number one, the devil is real. Okay? Uh, to quote a, a Hollywood movie from back in the 90s, uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Okay? Uh, oftentimes, uh, we, we don't really think uh, that Satan is a real person. Uh, that he is a true power in this world. And again, what, the, what I quoted was, was Hollywood theology. Uh, that's, that's not uh, in uh, the Bible, but it's, it's pretty accurate uh, for not being an exact quote. Uh, and we cannot deny uh, that uh, the devil exists. Secondly, not only does he exist, but he is a fallen angel uh, of the highest order. You know, now where do we see this in Scripture? Well, if you keep your, your finger here in, in John chapter 8, turn back with me to the Old Testament, Ezekiel chapter 28. I want to, I want to look at a passage here. That's uh, it's pretty important. So if, if you look at the beginning of Ezekiel 28, you probably have some type of a, a heading there. The ESV says, uh, a prophecy against the prince of Tyre. So if you look at verses 1 and 2, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the prince of Tyre. Thus says the Lord God. Now, Tyre is a, a city uh, in uh, the land of Israel, just kind of just north and along the coast of the, the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, and uh, Ezekiel is speaking a word against the, the ruler of that city uh, who was holding himself up to be a god uh, and holding himself uh, in essence, out in, uh, in rebellion against uh, the king of uh, Babylon. But what's interesting is in, in verse 2, we have this, this prophecy against the prince of Tyre. But then if you look over at verse, verses 11 and 12, you may have another heading there. Uh, and it, it says, A lament over the king of Tyre. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Like, well, wait a second. Uh, there, are, there are two different people being spoken of here, or rather two different beings. Uh, the first part of this chapter, uh, verses 1 through 10, are speaking about the human king uh, of uh, that uh, city of Tyre. And verses uh, 11 through 19 uh, are speaking about the demonic power behind that human king. Uh, the, the ruler of that king uh, is Satan. Uh, and so look with me, beginning of verse 11. Oh, we can pick it up in verse 12. It says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were in anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. 
Your heart was proud because of your beauty, and you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. This is uh, a divine insight into uh, things that we didn't see elsewhere in Scripture. Right? Genesis 3 records uh, the, the serpent, Satan, leading Adam and Eve into temptation and into rebellion against God. But this, again, pulls back another theological curtain and helps us to understand uh, what took place uh, from the point when uh, Satan was created, somewhere in Genesis 1, uh, to when he arrived in the garden and led humanity into sin. This is further insight. And this really shows us that Satan was the highest created being. He he was that anointed cherub. He he was uh, special in the presence of God. Uh, And because of his beauty, his splendor, that that led him to be prideful. Uh, And he raised himself up against God. Uh, And uh, ultimately that led to his rebellion, his rejection of God and his attempt to to overthrow him. And ultimately he failed miserably, but he was cast down. We need to understand that Satan is real, that he is a fallen angel of the highest order, but also that he is the ruler of this world. Repeatedly in the New Testament, we see uh, that Satan is now in charge. And in essence, when when Adam gave in to the temptation of Satan in the garden, he gave over the keys to the earth. What was Adam supposed to do? He was supposed to exercise dominion over creation, and instead of doing that, he wanted to do his own thing. Uh, and he fell into sin, and now uh, Satan has the keys. John chapter 12, verse 31, and chapter 16, verse 11, call Satan the ruler of this world. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2 refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says that he is the God of this world. Matthew 12, 24 says that he is the ruler of demons. He is now the ruler of this world and all things are under his power and influence. Uh, but then uh, there's three more things we need to keep in mind. We can r- run through them really quickly. Number, number four, he opposes God. Everything that God is and everything that God does, he opposes. Uh, And again, this is the very heart and nature of his rebellion. Fifth, Satan opposes God's program. Now, we've looked at the big picture of the Bible and said that God uh, is working to bring glory to himself by saving a people through his son, Jesus Christ. But all along the way, if that's the the big picture storyline of the Bible, we see the devil constantly attacking at that, trying to, to ruin God's plan uh, and to, to bring it to failure. But uh, it is ultimately always Satan who fails. And this is seen in countless ways uh, throughout Scripture. Um, too, too many to, uh, to go into right now, and I don't want to get uh, sidetracked. But Satan is constantly opposing God's program. And then sixth, we need to, to understand that Satan is constantly opposing God's people. He's constantly seeking to devour and to destroy uh, the children of God, those who have trusted in Christ. Now, the world has, has implanted in our minds uh, what picture of Satan. You know, when, I, when I say that name, what, what image comes to mind? It may be a uh, little cartoon man dressed in a red suit, maybe with, with horns, uh, maybe a tail, 
and then maybe a, a trident or pitchfork. Yeah, uh, I guess it is a pitchfork. I was thinking trident. Yeah, pitchfork, right? Uh, and, and that's kind of the, the vision of Satan that we have been sold. But that is not the biblical picture. Okay? Back in the, the 1970s, there was a, an, an infamous serial killer named Ted Bundy. And what was re- remarkable is that he confessed to committing 30 murders. And the police believed that there were far more than just those 30. And, and Ted Bundy, I think, was so successful in his wickedness because he didn't look creepy. Now, you didn't look at him and say, that's a dangerous guy, I need to stay away from him. No, he, he was handsome, he was charming, and he used his looks and his charm to win the confidence of young women, and he murdered them. He used those things for the worst kinds of evil. See, see that's more the picture that, that we need to get in our minds when it comes to Satan. He, he's not a, a cartoonish little man. He's... He is a man in disguise and who is out for our destruction. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, and speaking about false teachers, Paul says they disguise themselves as true teachers. And he says it's no wonder because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. No, we have to understand that. We, we're kind of waiting and expecting for, for the devil to, to come out and announce who he is and what he's doing and how he's trying to undermine us. But he doesn't do that. Genesis 3.1 said that now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. That's what we have to understand. And this is why we are commanded, as Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, he says, pray that we would be delivered from evil or delivered from the evil one. This is why we are commanded in Ephesians chapter 6 to put on the whole armor of God that you may stand, that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the tricks of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. And then as we read last month in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan is constantly seeking to destroy the true children of God. And so the father of this other family... He opposes God and he seeks to uh, oppose and destroy God's people. Uh, and he even uh, enslaves his own. Uh, and that's, that's what we're going to see. So we, we've been introduced to the, the father of this other family. Now what are the, the traits of this other family? Right? And what we're going to see in verses 41 to 47 uh, is uh, the, the spiritual characteristics right, uh, of this other family. And think of it this way. If if every single human father, either intentionally or unintentionally, is discipling his children, what does that mean about those who are the children of the devil? We, we are 
uh, being influenced and discipled and instructed to become more and more like him. So how is the devil instructed and shaped his children? What are the spiritual traits of this other family? And we're going we're gonna to move through these rather quickly, but well, we see the first one in uh, verse 41, the, really the first statement that Jesus makes. He says, uh, you are doing the works your father did. Right? And this is simply a reaffirmation of what Jesus said previously. Uh, he says, uh, in the same way that Jesus is uh, teaching what he has seen his father doing, and he says, uh, you are doing what you've heard your father doing. Again, the same way that any uh, earthly son mimics uh, his uh, earthly father, uh, Jesus is pointing to that. He's going to say, hey, you are doing exactly what uh, your father does. Uh, you're doing the works of your father. Uh, that's the first trait. But the second trait is seen in, in the, the response uh, from the Jews uh, in verse 41. Uh, and they object. Uh, they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Uh, we have one father, even God. And what we see really is, is they are still confused uh, about their spiritual parentage. Uh, and again, uh, the, the devil being crafty doesn't come out and, and tell us the truth, but he speaks lies and he convinces people uh, that they are children of God when they are really not. Uh, and uh, as the Jews object to what Jesus has said, they they make this claim and they say we were not born of sexual immorality. Now, this could be taken in, in one of two ways. It could first be saying uh, they were not guilty of idolatry. Uh, and so in the Old Testament, uh, sexual immorality and spiritual idolatry were always linked together. Uh, and uh, God used the picture of marriage uh, to help the, the Jews see that they had been unfaithful to him. Uh, their idolatry uh, with him was like uh, a husband or a, a wife cheating on their spouse. Uh, and so they could be acting and insinuating like, we, we, weren't, we are not spiritual idolaters. We weren't born out of idolatry. Uh, or they could be making a, a jab at Jesus. Uh, they could be uh, making an accusation or an, an implication that he uh, was an illegitimate child. Uh, all of these questions around uh, his birth. Uh, but uh, either way, I think that the bigger emphasis uh, is upon their, their claim that they are children of God. Right? And this is interesting. They, Jesus denied them the, the, the title of children of Abraham. And so maybe they're trying to ratchet it up. If you're going to say we're not children of Abraham, well, we're going to appeal that we're children of God. Uh, and uh, Jesus is ultimately going to, to refute that. But the emphasis here is, is upon their confusion. Right? They continue to, to find their identity uh, and this assurance of their salvation that really isn't there. Uh, it's something that we must be aware of, that it, we can be guilty of that same false understanding, that same false assurance. And Jesus is really going to, to disprove their claim. They say, well, we are children of God. He's going to say, well, let me, let me clear this up. Uh, and in verse 42, uh, Jesus disproves this claim. And uh, in this, we're going to see a, a third trait uh, of this other family, that, that they have no love for Jesus. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if, you were, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. And, uh, and the indictment here uh, is not that they hate Jesus. Now, they do hate Jesus, uh, but he doesn't indict them for that. Uh, the indictment is that they do not love him. Okay, so let me explain the, the difference between those two. Uh, the issue is not that the presence 
of a negative affection. The issue is not that they hate him. Uh, the issue is the absence of a positive affection. Now, and by stating the charge in this way, Jesus is showing that apathy towards him uh, is unacceptable. Now, there's no neutral uh, third ground here. Uh, and apathy towards him is just as condemning as hatred towards him. Uh, and true children of God will love Jesus, uh, and everyone else is either going to be outright hostile uh, or they're going to be apathetic. So you can think of it this way. Uh, the great commandment, right? We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Think about, hypothetically speaking, why is the commandment not, not this? Why, why did God not say, you shall not hate me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Right? Uh, why is that? Or why at a, at a wedding ceremony, we had somebody at the church get married yesterday. Uh, why at a wedding ceremony, uh, when speaking with the bride and groom, do you say, uh, do you promise to, to love this person in sickness and health? You don't say, do you promise not to hate them? Right? It's like, that's what every bride and groom wants to hear on their wedding day, right? I promise not to hate you. Uh, it's like, okay. Uh, but that's oftentimes how we, how we think. And it's, it's far easier to obey that second hypothetical version, right? Uh, it's far easier to say, well, I just, I don't hate Jesus, but, but that's not what we're called to do. Uh, the, the, the command is for us to, to love God. To love Jesus. Uh, and uh, it's far easier to obey that second command because in that framework of that hypothetical version of you shall not hate, uh, in that framework, apathy is acceptable. Uh, and you can be neutral. Well, I don't hate him. I don't, I don't love him, but I don't hate him. That's not the issue. The issue is, do we have a love and affection for Jesus? Right? And if we, if we have a love and affection for Jesus, we show ourselves to be children of God. And if we don't have that love and affection for Jesus, we show ourselves to be children of someone else. Right? Who do children love most? Their father or someone else's father? Right? That's the, the emphasis here. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this very convicting words in the end of 1 Corinthians 16.22. He says, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. By that, those, are, those are very strong words. If, if someone does not love Jesus, let him be accursed. But that's the, the same truth that Jesus is pointing to. If you are a child of God, if you love God, you're going to love everything connected to God, even including the one whom God has sent. And so uh, that's the third trait, and it's really one of the most important traits we're going to see here, uh, an, an absence of love for Jesus. But then there's a fourth trait in verse 43. Now they are deaf to Jesus' message. He says, why do you not understand what I say? And then he, he answers, it's because you cannot bear to hear my word. Uh, and uh, the, the emphasis here, there's kind of a, a nuance in the Greek of they don't understand Jesus' uh, speech because they don't understand the content of what he's uh, saying. Uh, they do not understand because they are incapable uh, of hearing. Uh, and uh, when, uh, when I was a kid, 
my mom said I had selective hearing. Uh, that there were times, th- those things that I did not want to obey, uh, I didn't hear. What? What was that? Uh, and uh, every mom can identify uh, with that. Uh, and what Jesus is saying here is, is similar, uh, but it's not connected with a human choice or a human volition. What he is saying is you're, you're unable to. You have selective hearing, not because you're choosing it, but that's your default. Uh, you are unable to hear and bear what Jesus is saying. That's why they're unable to, to comprehend and receive. They have uh, hearts that are hard and ears that are deaf because of their, their sin, because of their spiritual family. And ultimately, their, their hearts beat with the same affections as their father, which is what Jesus is going to emphasize in verses 44 to 46, a fifth trait of the children of this other family. They have the same affections as their father. Uh, and, and in these verses, uh, Jesus, again, he, he's going to say something to, to shock them, to try and jolt their system and get them to see. You are of your father, the devil. And then he's going to explain uh, their desires. He's going to connect their desires with the desires of their father. He says, you want to do his desires. Uh, and then Jesus explains specifically what are the desires of Satan. Right? And, and he, he, he approaches this w- with two specifics. Number one, he says that Satan is the destroyer of life. Because he has been a murderer from the beginning. Right? And, and this could refer directly to uh, Cain and Abel. Some people take it that way, but I think it refers actually to uh, Satan's temptation in the garden. Right? If, if Satan wanted to destroy Adam, he could have attacked him. Right? He could have just killed Adam right there. But what did he do instead of just killing and attacking Adam, a frontal attack, what did he do? He, he led him into temptation and sin, and as a result, Satan has in essence brought death not only to Adam, but to all of Adam's descendants. Spiritual death has passed uh, through uh, every single generation of human history. So in that sense, uh, Satan is the murderer of the whole human race. He has brought death to everyone by getting Adam to fall. He is the destroyer of life. But then secondly, Satan is the denier of truth. Okay? Uh, and, th- and this is seen very clearly if you, if you look at the second part of verse 44. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Right? Uh, and uh, so Satan wants nothing to do with the truth. He doesn't stand in it. He doesn't speak it. Uh, every time he speaks from his own character, he speaks lies. He's a liar and the father of lies. And, and what Jesus is trying to connect for them is what are the desires of uh, the, the pe- group of people that he is speaking with right now? If you look back at the very beginning of this section, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And then Jesus is saying, you reject the truth. The, the two characteristics and the desires of, of Satan as a, the destroyer of life and the denier of truth, Jesus is saying, that's you. This is their character right here, right now. 
And Jesus makes their denial of truth very clear in verses 45 and 46. He says, but because I tell you the truth, uh, there's the, the cause or the reason, because Jesus speaks the truth, that means that it's leading to their rejection of him. Meaning if Jesus came speaking lies, what would they have done? They would have received him. But because he speaks the truth, they reject him. And he asks two rhetorical questions in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? He points, if, if I'm speaking falsehood, he says, accuse me. But if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And this is a, an amazing statement concerning Jesus' own sinlessness. All right, think about that. The, the willingness to stand in front of your, your greatest opponents and say, which of you can accuse me? I wouldn't want to do that. Right? But he says that, and he knows they have nothing to bring against him. Which of you can accuse me? And if I speak the truth, which he is, then why do they not receive it? No, he, he's going to, to explain that. In essence, what he is saying is because he speaks the truth, they are rejecting him. This verse explains unbelief. And uh, one commentator D.A. Carson puts it this way. He says, The children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus, and the children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. That's what he is emphasizing here. They reject the one whom God has sent. And if God is their father, why would they reject the messenger of the Father? Why would they reject the Son? The, the answer and the implication is given in, in verse 47. Sixth and final trait here. Ultimately that, ultimately that they do not belong to God. Jesus says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. And the reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So Jesus is very clearly saying, trying to, to shake their foundation. You don't belong to God. He is not your father. You have a different father. And he has shown that and demonstrated that by drawing all of these connections between the, the character of their father, the devil, and their own actions and attitudes towards him at this point in time. Now, I know we, we moved through that very quickly. Okay, so let's, let's pause and take a deep breath, come up for air, swim to the surface. Uh, and uh, I want to just think about the, the significance of this. Okay, we've seen the father of this other family and the, the spiritual traits of this other family. The six spiritual traits, right? They do the, the works of their father. They're confused about their, the identity of their father. They have no love for Jesus. They are deaf to Jesus' message. They have the same affections as their father, and ultimately they do not belong to God. Now, in, in, in these verses, we have an explanation as to why people do not believe. Why, why do people reject Jesus? Why are they hard-hearted towards him? Jesus is, is laying all of that out. But what we don't have is an explanation of why people do believe. Right? If, if this is the, the, the situation for each and every one of us, 
uh, if we are all naturally belonging to this other family, how does anybody come to be a child of God? Well, the answer is uh, by the divine initiative of God himself. We would all still be in that family if God did not save us out of that family uh, and bring us into his own family. You know, at, the, at the very beginning of the gospel, uh, what I read earlier, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And in Christ, God is adopting his enemies into his own family. Now, he is rescuing those who are being neglected and abused, uh, who are being enslaved by this other father, the devil. And he is rescuing us out of that and bringing us into his own family. Love what one of the Puritans says about this. He says, Consider the amazing goodness that God is pleased to be a father to us while our hearts stood as garrisons against him. He conquered our stubbornness and turned us from enemies to children. And he wrote his name upon us and bestowed on us a kingdom of glory. What a miracle of mercy this is. And he says, uh, the, the beauty and the power of being able to call God Father is there is more sweetness in this word, Father, than if we had 10,000 worlds. That's what we get to see and rejoice of, of looking clearly at who we were and what God has rescued us out of. Uh, and now he has completely transformed us, given us new affections, uh, made us like his sons. And now we love him and live for him rather than living for ourselves. And God is able to rescue each and every one of us, out of sin, out of darkness, out of uh, abuse, out of addiction, neglect, out of whatever we are facing. God is able to save us out of that, to bring us into his family, where he will lovingly care for us and lead us as his children. Uh, and I pray that, again, we don't look at this and, and view this to, to, as a way to hammer others to tear them down. No. Again, this is true for each and every one of us. Whether we uh, are a children of God now, this is our, our old family. Uh, or if you have not looked to Christ, I would urge you to, to think about what Jesus is saying here today. Think about what he is saying about your condition before God the Father right now and look to him in faith. Uh, examine your own heart and see if these things are true. And you will see and understand what you have been acting like, where, where your affections lie. Are they towards Jesus or are they towards the things of this world? Are they towards yourself? And Christ is calling us to love him, to love God, uh, and to examine our own hearts to see what spiritual family we are in. Let's pray.